All right, in your Bibles, turn to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. We're continuing our series through Ezra and Nehemiah. Today we're looking at opposition. That's the theme of Ezra 4. But it's also true of our lives today. So let's read. Ezra 4 verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshagon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around us set out to discourage the people of Judah, made them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials, worked against them, and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then you see they'll write a letter to a king, and that letter gets a response from the king, so skip on down to verse 23 of chapter 4. As soon as a copy of the letter of King Anaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimzi, the secretary of their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for your word, Lord, I pray that we see with fresh eyes what you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you clear our minds and clear our hearts. Help us hear from you. Help us walk obediently to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Ezra chapter 4 is a very interesting chapter. Up until this point, we saw the exiles return in chapters 1 and 3, and they got to laying the foundation of the altar. But then Ezra picks up a theme and the theme is opposition. The theme is opposition. Um, if any of you have seen any UFC or MMA fights, there's always a referee in the middle of the ring or the octagon. The most famous one is a guy by the name of Big John McCarthy. And ever, before every fight, he would ask the two fighters, he asks, are you ready? Are you ready? And then with this catchphrase, he says, let's get it on. Now, I've never seen him ask a fighter, are you ready? And that fighter says, nope, not yet. By the time the door is shut and they're in the ring and they're in the octagon, they are ready to battle. Now, it would be a mistake if one of the fighters thought they were just a spectator. But many people in Christ think that this is home. And it's not. You're in enemy-occupied territory. The battle is on. This is not peacetime. This is wartime. And Ezra chapter 4 shows this isn't a new thing. There's always been enemies. There's always been opposition. And so the question is, how are you going to deal with that? My question to you is, are you ready? You get to Ezra chapter 4, and we see some of the dates with 1 through 3. They come from 
exile to Jerusalem, and it covers about 100 years. In Ezra chapter 1 through 3, it takes time in 539 B.C. Now, I know this is hard to see, the timeline, but I want us to understand this because Ezra's writing this for a purpose that means something for us today. All right, so 539 B.C., Ezra chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4 looks at the theme of opposition. Verses 1 through 5 of that chapter have to do with Cyrus and Darius. Cyrus and Darius. You have Cyrus ruling from 538 to 530 B.C. Ezra's not in the land yet. He's heard about what is happening. And then Darius comes to rule from 522 to 486 B.C. And we see that the work stops for 15 years until the second year of Darius. But then after those two guys come a guy by the name of Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And Ezra's writing about those guys. Now, I, I want you to, to see this. Verses 6 to 23 are years after Darius. Years after Darius. Xerxes ruled from 486 to 464 B.C. This is when Ezra returns. He returns in 458. 13 years after that comes Nehemiah. Then you have Artaxerxes ruling from 464 all the way down to 423 B.C. So, years and years of opposition. As a matter of fact, what you see here from 539 to 445 B.C. are the enemies of God opposing the people of God and the work of God. Opposition. James Hamilton put it this way, The challenge in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah was not to rebuild the temple. That had been done nearly 50 years ago. The challenge in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah was to rebuild the city and its walls. When Ezra arranged the material this way, he communicated his belief that the opposition to rebuilding the city and the walls would be overcome, just as the opposition to rebuilding the temple had been overcome. You see, God had already moved in the people to finish the temple when Ezra is writing, but he hadn't moved to rebuild the walls and the gates in the city. And what Ezra is saying is just as God has been faithful to the first group and the second group, he will be faithful to our group. And what we could say is just as God has been faithful to his people throughout the history of the world, he will be faithful to his people today. A hundred years, opposition, right here in the book of Ezra, and nothing has changed. And so my question to you is, are you ready? And what you'll see in this chapter, three ways the enemy come. Three ways the enemy attacks the people of God. They try to distract them, they try to discourage them, and they try to destroy them, and it hasn't changed. And there's two responses that we should have as the people of God. Two responses that you see again and again throughout the Bible. Again and again throughout redemptive history, you see God's people, they don't compromise, and they don't quit. You don't compromise, and you don't quit. So let's dig in. Number one, about the enemy. What will he do? The enemy will distract. You see this in verses 1 through 3. And, and you know, the people of the land come and ask, hey, do you want me to help you? Do you want me to help you? Now put yourself in the exile's shoes. They're returning to the homeland. The temple's not built. 
the walls aren't built, the gates aren't there. It's a very dangerous time. And you want to know what they do need? They need manpower. They need help. But they don't need to compromise. And so the people that come says, hey, we worship the God that you worship. Well, we see in 2 Kings, check this out. This is interesting. In 2 Kings, we see this group of people. They do worship God, but not really. In 2 Kings 17, verse 28, we hear about this group of people that's coming to offer God's people help in rebuilding the temple. Now, I want you to see, because what would be your response? You have a huge project that God has given you. You've taken a long journey. Your family's in danger, and you have a group of people coming to offer a hand. What would be your response? Well, this is this group of people. In verse 28 of 2 Kings 17, it says, So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines and the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The people from Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, and those from Kunath made Nergal, and those from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nehemiah and Tartak, and the Saravites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramelech and Ammonelech, the gods of Sherevaim. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance to their customs and nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in the former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to his decrees and regulations, the laws and the commands the Lord has given the descendants of Jacob, who he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, Do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord only, who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty power and outstretched arm, is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down, and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations, the laws, commands, which he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made you, and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. He is the one who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. But... They would not listen. However, they persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and their grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. So they come and they say, hey, we want to help because we worship your God. They don't. They don't. And more than the people of God needing help, they needed obedience. There is no room for compromise. There is no room for compromise. There's a commercial out there, and uh, the guy's name is Mayhem. And then in this particular commercial, he's doing the latest TikTok, right? And he goes, and again and again, he talks about how this hashtag, um, no common sense, is growing in numbers. It's so hard to keep up with. It's the latest trend, and he's doing this dance, and you have this guy driving. And Mayhem goes, hey, this is going to have tens of tens of views, latest hit. And the guy just keeps looking as he's driving and then smack right into the back of what I think is a garbage truck. Great commercial, right? Great commercial. But it shows the power of distraction. It shows the power of distraction. If God's people said, hey, you know what? 
come on, you can help us build this temple. And then we can put some little temples over here for your gods that you worship, and everything is going to be all right. That's not how God operates. That's not how God operates. You don't kind of follow Jesus. You either deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, or you don't follow him at all. Jesus is either Lord and Savior, or he's neither. And so if you say, hey, you know what, I believe Jesus will save me, but you don't follow him as Lord, he won't be your Savior. If you follow him as Lord, trust in him to save you, you get both. It's not an either or, it's an all or nothing. There is no room for compromise. And we do this again and again and again. Let's get specific with compromising. When you look at distractions, what are some distractions that we face right now? What are some distractions that we face right now? There's a million of them. They could be your hobby. They could be the sport that you play in high school. They could be a relationship. They could be social media. It could be binge watching Netflix. It could be your summer vacation. There are some really good things that can become really bad things when they replace Jesus in your life. What distracts you from your walk with Christ? What distracts you from your walk with Jesus? What distracts you from your prayer time? What distracts you from digging into the Word? None of those things will come easy to you. It's a battle. You have an enemy. And the enemy will give you everything else to do except follow Jesus. I want you to have the focus that my one-year-old daughter has when it comes to mealtime. Today, uh, she's not feeling too hot. She's getting her teeth in. She has a little bit of fever, so she's at home with mom. But she was eating her yogurt for breakfast. And I'm just trying to get a wave, a smile, a blink, some acknowledgement through FaceTime on your phones. I'm looking at her. She sees me. No acknowledgement at all. And when Julianne tries to have a conversation, she starts making noises. She can't speak, but she can communicate. She wants that yogurt to keep coming. That's the focus we need. I'm not going to get distracted by dad. I'm not going to let mom and dad have a conversation. I'm in this chair. I'm getting that yogurt, and I'm going to make sure I keep getting that yogurt. That's the type of focus I wish we had. I'm going to keep getting after Christ, and I'm not going to be distracted by everything this world has to throw. God's people were right here, but nothing's changed with our opposition. How are you distracted today? Is overtime at your work more important than time with Jesus? Are you distracted in your marriage? You thought it was about yourself, but it was actually about how you can glorify Jesus in that relationship? What about raising kids? It's amazing the money and time spent on sports. It's like we have this, now, now we look at this passage in 2 Kings like, oh, they were sacrificing their kids and they're worshiping all these idols, or this wooden objects and golden objects. Like, that's silly. But you know what? We do the same thing with idols. They have different shapes and made of different material. But there's just as many idols today as there were in 2 Kings. And one of those idols are sports. It's amazing the time and money we spend on trainers and seasons and equipment and sports. Now listen, there's not a bigger sports fan in the room than I am. I love sports. But what's the purpose of sports? 
What's the purpose of sports? To glorify God with the gifts he's given you. Glorify God with the gifts he's given you. You can worship Jesus in how you play and practice sports. But you want to know what happens a lot? We love to make it about ourselves. Mike, I think this was easy. Uh, Mike had this awesome play. He intercepts a pass, and he runs 80 yards and has a pulled hamstring at about the 50-yard line, but he still makes it to the end zone. But, but you want to know what? Mike doesn't keep on bringing that story up. Why? Because the football game wasn't about his glory. It was about our team, and more importantly, it was about how Mike could glorify God by playing a simple sport like football. All of that stuff passes away. But isn't it amazing how that type of stuff consumes us? How about your hobby? How about your hobbies? Is it taking the place of some things that should have priority over it? I, I knew a softball guy. Loved playing softball. And uh, I, I love this. He said, you know what, Ben? It, it came to me when over the summer I was looking and I only had two open weekends to be with my family. So he was a newly married, newly dad. And he said, you know what? I just, I felt like it wasn't worth sacrificing my family for softball. But the same is true with your walk with Christ. You can't put your walk with Jesus on hold to pursue a hobby. Uh, Matt, you preached um, Romans 12. And in verse 9, it says, love must be genuine. How do you do that? How do you do that? Love must be genuine. It says you cling to what is good. You hate what is evil, and you cling to what is good. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever clinged to anything, you don't have room to cling to something else. So you want to know how you don't get distracted? You cling to Jesus and you let go of everything else. And then watch how he changes your life. So right here, God's people, they were offered a distraction, not help. And they didn't take it. So what do you think happens? What do you think happens in the story? Like I would think if I'm reading this, they pass the test. God's going to bless them. They'll have this temple done in no time. But that's not what happens. It goes from bad to worse. So not only does the enemy and the opposition, not only do they distract, but they'll also discourage. You see this in verse 4 and 5. They bribed officials in verse 6 to work against them, frustrate their plans. So we see the motives of their heart. They're not really in it to worship God. It's about them. They want the influence and the power. And honestly, in the church, we have to be careful with this. When we sing, when we preach, when we play the instruments, when we serve, it's not about us. It's about glorifying and worshiping God. And here, this is what they're discouraged. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. In Exodus 14, you have Moses leading a people out of bondage. Right? They, they, Moses leads them out of, of bondage. The, they get to the Red Sea, and they're, they're surrounded by water, and they look behind them, and this army is pursuing them. The Egyptians are coming, and this is a massive army. And the people see the sea, see the army, and they look at Moses. And they start saying, Moses, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Was it because they didn't have enough graves that we had to come out here and die in the wilderness? And then they start talking crazier. They say, it was better for us back there. Moses sees the sea, sees the army, but he doesn't say, you know what, we got a brainstorm, we need a, a strategic vision here. You want to know what he does? He gets his eyes on God. 
And God says, why are you crying? Move. And, and sometimes I wonder, like, if Moses said, uh, I don't know if you see, God, there's a little bit of water here. Right? We, we got kids and family. We can't kind of, what do you mean move? He meant move. I wonder who it was that took the first step. And the water just, and they walk on dry ground. You see, the people were discouraged because their eyes were on the circumstances and the problems. Moses, Moses got his eyes on God. But now, this happens again and again and again. The spies, they, they go in the wilderness, they get to the land, they send spies out to see the land, and they come back and bring this report. Hey, the land is perfect just like God said it was, flowing with milk and honey. This is the promise that God's given us. But then they say, but the people in the land are huge. They're too big for us. And it says that the hearts of the people became discouraged. And Caleb and Joshua tried to encourage the people, say, whoa, 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 whoa. Get your eyes back on God. Don't be afraid of them. God is with us. What do you mean they're big? Our God is bigger and greater and with us. But they don't listen. They're discouraged and they don't go into the land. Another example. You have God's army, the Israelites, standing on one side, the Philistines on another side, but the Philistines had an ace up their sleeve. They have this guy named Goliath. Nobody on the planet could take Goliath. He was a bigger, badder dude than anybody else on the planet at this time. And the people of God are terrified, and for 40 days, Goliath comes out and says, hey, we don't all have to die. You send out one representative, we fight, whoever wins, that military wins. Well, the army refused to go to battle 40 days every morning here comes this giant talking trash to God's army the king the generals the lieutenants the military terrified by one guy but then all of a sudden there's one boy coming to deliver lunch to his older brothers and the first day he hears Goliath talking trash, he goes to the king. The king saw him and says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'll go take care of this guy. The king looked at him like he was crazy. But you want to know what David saw? He didn't see the giant on the land. He saw the giant that was his God. And he says, hey, just like I defeated a lion and a bear because God was with me, I'll defeat this guy. It's not a big deal. Because God is, you see, the problem with discouragement is many times it's so easy to know our eyes should be on God. But in the chaos, our eyes go to ourselves for solutions and our circumstances for the problems. And our circumstances will be bigger than ourselves, but they're never bigger than our God. So if you want to defeat discouragement, you have to get your eyes on God. This is what you see again and again throughout the Bible. Now, I know this is going to be repetitive. But the reason why I want to repeat each passage is because we have a tendency to forget this. And if you're not discouraged today, you will face discouragement one day. And this is what you have to remember. In Deuteronomy 31.8, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why are they not discouraged? Because their God is before them and with them. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Now, this isn't him being personally strong and him being personally courageous. 
He's not saying, hey, Joshua, I need you to do better. His strength and his courage flow from something. We keep reading in one nine. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. His courage and strength came from knowing the presence of God. If God is with you, what do you have to be afraid of? 2 Chronicles 28.20 David also said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And then again in 2 Chronicles 20.15 he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. 2 Chronicles 32, 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria, that vast army with him, for there is greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. That's like saying with him, yeah, he's got more tanks. He's got more helicopters. He's got more bombs. He's got stronger military, better intelligence. Don't worry about that. People would think you were crazy to talk like this. But listen to what we see in 2 Chronicles. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king said to Judah. And then in Matthew 28, 20. Jesus is speaking to his people. He says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You want to defeat discouragement in your life? It's not think better thoughts about yourself. It's not try harder. It's to remember that God is with you. And if Jesus is with us to the end of the age, we can keep taking the next step and the next step and the next step. Watch out for discouragement. And I think there's two areas that you can see this in your own life. You're walking with Jesus. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're still struggling with stuff that you don't think you should be struggling with. Maybe you thought you were better than this. Uh, Why am I talking about, why do I have this type of attitude? Why do I do this? And like, will this ever happen? And discouragement can set in. And Satan loves to remind us how bad we are. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're made new. And what he started, he'll finish. And then there's discouragement with the work. I've tried that. I've done that. It's not working. Maybe God put something in your heart, a work that he has given you, and you've let that grow cold. Don't be discouraged. Get your eyes back on Jesus and get back to work. The answer to discouragement is remembering the presence of God. If God is with us, what do we have to be afraid of? So the enemy will distract, the enemy will discourage, but then finally you see that the enemy will destroy. I think this is, I'm not going to read the letter that was written for the sake of time, but this is from verses 6 all the way to 24. It says the letter laid out four accusations. It says that, hey, if you let these guys rebuild, they build this temple, they'll withhold their money, they'll dishonor you, king, They'll rebel like they did before, and they'll take over the whole area. Basically, that summarizes the letter. The king reads that. He's like, oh, I don't want that to happen. So they send the letter back, stop the work. And for 15 years, the work stopped. The whole purpose of the exiles returning to the land was to do the work, 
But it stops for 15 years. You want to know what I wondered? 15 years. I wonder if they thought, you know what? God must have made a mistake. Here we are. We thought God was going to keep his promises. We come back to this land to build the temple, and boom, now we can't. I wonder if they thought that. You want to know what happened in those 15 years? A letter was read, and a guy heard it. He was a cupbearer for a king. His name was Nehemiah. He says when Nehemiah heard this, his heart was broken. And he led the people to pray. And then he led a group back to Jerusalem. You want to know what? The work's been completed. Isn't it a funny thing how Satan will attack? How the world operates? Distraction to discouragement to destruction. But that's never the end. We know that in Christ we won't be destroyed. We know how this thing ends. We've read Revelation. Jesus wins. He's already defeated the grave, and one day we'll defeat the grave because he has. He's working all things out according to his plan for our good and his glory. I wish I had an an acorn. I don't have an acorn. It's tiny, isn't it? You plant that thing, and after two years, an oak tree is still less than a foot tall. Not very big. If I was reading, I was looking at this example. After 200 years, this oak tree gets to be over 78 feet tall. Massive oak tree. But you know what? If you go out and look every day, you're like, well, to your eye and to my eye, it's like, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. And sometimes I think that's how we look at the work of God. We look and we can't see the results that we want. Things aren't changing fast enough. But know this, God is working and accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish. I want to leave you with this because I, I don't, I don't want to kill our, our nursery workers uh, back in the back. There's two things to respond to this. There, there's two ways to respond to this. Number one, don't compromise. Do not compromise. You might be here thinking, this isn't what I signed up for. Don't want to do this anymore. You see this was verse 3. They said, nope, you have no part in building this with us. And then you look in the Bible, and what you see is when Abraham compromised, when Samson compromised, when David compromised, it always left heartache and destruction. Now, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Boston, Massachusetts, but they had a skyscraper built there. It was called the John Hancock Tower. And in 1973, they had this huge building with over 10,000 windows. The problem is they had a great deal on windows, but they weren't heat sensitive. And what would happen when they would heat up inside and they'd get cold outside, the windows wouldn't adapt to the building. And they would become rigid, they'd become real tough, not flexible. And then wind would come, and pshoom, there goes the window. Now, glass falling is always dangerous. Glass falling 70-whatever feet, 70 stories, that'll kill you. And so this became known as the plywood palace because they replaced the windows with pieces of plywood until they could get the right glass cost them seven million dollars in 1973 to do that they thought they were making a deal and it ended up costing them now listen 
Satan will always think he's giving you a deal when it comes to compromise. So it might be dating somebody, you know what? So four girls in my life. And as a father, I don't care what future husbands look like. I don't care if they're short, tall, athletic, smart. You want to know what I care about? I care about if they have a heart after Jesus. And I hope in my prayers that my girls won't compromise. Because, listen, there's a lot of guys out there, but not a ton who love Jesus with everything they got. I hope we don't compromise when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to raising our children, when it comes to giving and serving. I hope we don't compromise. Let's learn from the people of God and be a people who never compromise. And then, finally, don't quit. Don't quit. You see the last verse, verse 24? Verse 24, it says, The work stopped until what? The second year of Darius's reign. Well, what happened then? They got back to work. They heard a word from the Lord, and they got back to work. And they didn't stop. They didn't quit. They kept building. The temple was built. The walls were built. The gates were built. Why? Because they didn't quit. Navy SEALs, they have this thing called Bud's Week. And it's harder than anything I can imagine. I started to look at some of the, the regulations. They, they were talking about four miles in 31 minutes. I'm not sure I could do one mile in 31 minutes. Four miles, 31 minutes. They have, it's uh, 10 football fields swimming in 20 minutes. It was 1,000 feet or 1,000 yards swimming in under 20 minutes. I don't know how that would go. I hope I don't drown. And it was amazing when you look at all the stuff that they had to do. They, they would do sleep deprivation, different tests. You got to have mastery over your weapon, mastery over detonation. It's just unreal requirements. And they're asking this guy named Jocko. He's this famous uh, Navy SEAL motivational speaker. He says, well, well what's the secret? How, what, what do you tell people to, to pass? He's like, man, I never know who will make it through and who won't. It's never who I thought. But you want to know what my only advice is? Don't quit. Don't quit. Get up the next day, do it again. Don't quit. Make it an hour, don't quit. Do the next hour, don't quit. He said there's no secret formula, just don't quit. And so I don't know how long you've been walking with Jesus, and you might be tired. You may have compromised, but you're not quitting. You want to know whose example we should follow in this? Because the enemy came after him. His name's Jesus. The enemy tried to distract him, said, hey, you could have all of these kingdoms, just bow down and worship me, and Jesus is like, nope, I'm following my father. I think the enemy tried to discourage him in the garden. He's like, nope, not my will, but your will be done. And then I think the enemy thought that he had destroyed the son when he was buried for three days. But you know what happened on that third day? He rose from the grave. And you want to know what that does? That enables you and me to never compromise and to never quit. Let us follow our risen King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, with so many people in the room, we're all over the place spiritually. Father, some are wondering if it's worth following you at all, and I pray that today you give them the grace to make that decision to follow you as Lord and Savior. Father, there are believers here this morning that are struggling in their walk with distractions and discouragement. Father, I pray that today they get their eyes back on you. Father, I pray as a family, we encourage one another to do the works that you set out for us to do.
Father, help us not compromise. Help us never quit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.